0: At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Well, Let's listen now with reverence to the Word of God beginning in verse 1. And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, But then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And let's focus our attention on verse 8 and following. Uh, With God's help, we'll be seeking this Sabbath to finish our series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, just so happens uh, I think it'll end up being 13 sermons, but in any event, 13 verses in the chapter draw whatever conclusions you will. But we're going to be finishing this up We spent one sermon on the introduction to the the, the passage about the necessity and indispensability of Christian love. We spent eight sermons on the practical, horizontal implications of Christian love. We've spent two sermons on the more general uh, commitment and love that we have toward God and toward His Word in verses 6 and 7. And now we'll spend, Lord willing... Again, we'll see how it goes, but uh, two sermons on verses 8 through 13 as the Apostle finishes up his argument and really brings it to a climax at the end of this chapter. But focusing our attention here on verse 8, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And then in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. He then concludes in verse 13, And now abide, faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. You'll notice here that the Apostle Paul is setting forth a hierarchy of spiritual priorities. He hinted at this at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. He says, "...but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way." So, he says, "...it's good to desire... Gifts of healings. Again, you bounce back to verse 30. It's good to desire gifts of healings. It's good to desire that uh, miraculous spiritual gift in the first century to be able to speak in other languages without having learned that language in the ordinary way. Proclaiming the gospel in other tongues, other languages. It's good to have that gift. And it's good to have that supernatural gift of interpretation of those foreign languages. It's good to have these things. He says, but there are better things. Earnestly desire the best gifts. So the best gifts are better than these other spiritual gifts. They're both good, but the best gifts are better than the other gifts. But then he says, there's an even more excellent way earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So what we have here is not a contrast primarily between good and evil. We're very familiar with that in the Scriptures. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. We've just spent a couple of sermons looking at love not rejoicing in iniquity. In other words, not rejoicing in what is evil, but rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing in what is good. So that's an important contrast to have in our tool belt as Christians, the contrast between good and evil. But here the Apostle is setting forth a hierarchy of spiritual priorities, or we could say a hierarchy among our spiritual priorities. In other words, good, better, best. Speaking in tongues, good. The greater gifts of prophecy to edify people in a language that everybody understands, better. Christian love, embracing our duties toward God and toward others, this comprehensive sum of all Christian grace, Christian love is the best, the most excellent. Uh, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So love is the greatest among all the spiritual graces and gifts, so on and so forth. Good, better, best. And this is important for us in our Christian lives. If we never get past good and evil, we're never going to progress to full spiritual maturity in the Christian life until we get to the point where we embrace good, better, best. When we understand that uh, it's not enough that we fill our lives with things that are not inherently sinful, or that we fill our lives with activities in the life of the church that are not inherently sinful. We can fill our lives with good things and yet waste our lives because we haven't been pursuing the best things at the proper time. You can have uh, people that have given their life to youth ministry, but their children go to hell because they never shepherded and discipled their children. You, Well, we, I guess some people would say youth ministry is a bad thing, but you get the point, right? You're ministering the gospel to other people. Let's say... Uh, evangelism you're ministering the gospel to other people and that's a good thing but if you're not ministering it to your own family to your own children that's a a bad thing because that's a better and more important more excellent thing so you, you can see good better best this is a framework for our priorities that we need to understand and apply if we don't we're going to fill our lives with good things at bad times, with bad priorities, and yet we're doing good things and we think we're okay. You know, there are many good things that we could say, well, it's not inherently evil. In some cases, it's a good thing. You can be on the internet debating biblical doctrine, and you can be persuading people of biblical truth on the internet. You can be reading theology books. You can. Uh, engage in a great amount of practical service in the life of the church, hospitality, you can do all these things like Martha, but the one thing needful at any particular time you can ignore. And, And Paul is saying that when we think of good, better, best, that category of best really is best summarized with this idea of Christian love. This ought to be at the top of the pyramid. This ought to be at the top of our priority list. Christian love. It's more excellent. It is the greatest. It's the top priority for the Christian. And you see statements of priority throughout the Scriptures. God revealed the worship ordinances of the Old Testament, and they brought Him glory, the sacrifices. But He says, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice in other words obedience to God's law which involves love for God love for others that is more excellent that is more important that is better than sacrifice other in another passage the Lord says something similar mercy I desire mercy not sacrifice there's a good better best there are priorities that need to be understood in the Christian life And at the heart of this biblical priority that Paul sets forth is Christian love. Or we could say piety and charity. Piety and charity. And knowing what we ought to be doing in our responsibilities to God and man, what we're to be doing and when and how, and to to not be distracted by things that are good, but they're not the most relevant and the best, most excellent things for us. Uh, you can see an example of people getting off track. Uh, I mentioned Martha in Luke 10, 40-42, but there's an example in Matthew 15 of the Pharisees. Matthew 15 and verse 5. Jesus is confronting them for making void the commandments of God by their tradition. And this is what they're teaching, these Pharisees. Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. In other words, instead of taking care of my elderly loved ones, I'm going to give that money to God. I'm going to in some way circumvent and avoid my responsibility to help other people in need that God's called me to help. I'm instead going to devote these things to some religious cause. And you can see here, it's not a bad thing to give to the church, it's a good thing. But the most excellent thing is to discern your primary responsibility of love for God and love for others, in this case, taking care of your parents. Uh, verse 6, he, he, Jesus continues, Then he need not honor his father or mother, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And He goes on to say, you draw near to me with your mouth, your heart is far from me which shows us the organic unity in Christian love. Love for God, love for others. He says you're not loving your parents because ultimately your heart is far from the Lord. You don't love the Lord. Duties of Christian love, duties of piety and charity. We're told that the woman of Proverbs 31 is the most excellent woman Proverbs 31, verse 29, many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Why is that? Why is it that the Proverbs 31 woman, and of course you could adapt these kinds of things for for a godly man, let's say the 1 Timothy 3 man or something like that, but the Proverbs 31 woman is most excellent because if you read through this chapter, you'll find that that she fears the Lord, so she's got the foundation of love for God, piety toward God, but flowing out of that, she understands her God-given responsibilities toward others in the home, even in the community, those who are poor and needy, she helps them as well, and so she's practically engaged in obeying God and helping others at various times in the situations where it needs to occur. She's not distracted by things that are good in themselves, but maybe not the most pressing. You can see it goes through her daily schedule and her routine. And at every point, she's on point, doing what she needs to do, when she needs to do it, understanding what is best, what is most relevant at any given time, and what duties and responsibilities are most near and dear. So she's taking care of her own heart, like right, clothing herself with strength and honor, and fearing the Lord. But she's also ministering to her husband. She's ministering to her children. And then she's ministering to the household and to the community, so on and so forth. She has a well-ordered life with a proper hierarchy among her spiritual priorities. And so she is most excellent. My friends, there's no substitute for properly prioritizing the duties of piety and charity over everything else in the Christian life. And Paul is bringing this chapter to a conclusion and so he, he's bringing these arguments to cement the fact that in fact love is the greatest, the most excellent way. Now what, are, what do we say about the verses that we've just looked at? Well, Paul is telling us that love's exceeding duration serves to demonstrate its exceeding greatness as the Christian virtue which most clearly reflects God's character. So Paul's bringing this argument to show the exceeding greatness of love and he says that love's exceeding duration serves to demonstrate its exceeding greatness as the Christian virtue which most clearly reflects God's character. Now again, when we speak of Christian love, we're speaking of love for God and love for others. We're speaking of the duties of piety and charity that flow from a regenerate heart of love. And you can see that if we would go back through the, the passages we've expounded thus far in the series. Christian love, that's the love we're dealing with. And Paul asserts the exceeding duration of Christian love, that love never fails Verse 8, love never fails. In other words, it never ceases. It never becomes obsolete. It never becomes irrelevant. It never becomes outdated. There's never been a time in human history where love has not been at the top of the priority scale. And there never will be a time, even beyond time in eternity, the everlasting future of the people of God. There will never be a time in which love is not at the top of the priority scale. It is eternally relevant, eternally supreme. Love has an exceeding duration. In what sense? Well, first, love outlasts all trials and temptations. True Christian love, when God saves a sinner and sheds forth His Holy Spirit into their heart, producing Christian love That Christian love in the heart of the believer never fails and never falls away. It outlasts all trials and temptations. Uh, The believer stumbles, but the believer does not fall headlong. Why? Because of the Christian love that the Holy Spirit produces in the heart of every believer. Love never fails. Love, as is said in the previous verse, verse 7, love endures all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. And Song of Solomon provides a beautiful picture of the love of Christ for His people, but also of the resulting love in the life of God's believing people. Song of Solomon 8, verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised, this vehement flame, verse 6, a most vehement flame, a flame of Jehovah literally, that's the only instance where the term Jehovah appears in the Song of Solomon and for whatever reason a lot of translators take it as vehement, but uh, it's a flame of Jehovah and it's the love of Jehovah which manifests itself in the life of the believer Producing love for Jehovah. Producing a saving Christian love in the heart of every believer that endures all things and which never fails. The devil would seek to drown and quench love. You see this in the book of Revelation. The dragon spewing out floodwaters against God's people. Attacking them with persecution. But they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, loving not their lives, even unto the death. This Spirit-produced Christian love, strong as death, endures all and never fails. This is the love that Jesus manifested in His life. John 13, verse 1. We're told before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Love stronger than death. He loved them to the end. That's the same love in principle that He puts in the hearts of His people. Love stronger than death. Love never fails. Our love for God never fails because Christ's love for us in sustaining our love never fails. And so we endure All things. But it is Christian love that enables us to persevere. We're told that Demas fell away because he loved this present world. His love for God faded and he fell in love with the world. We're told that when the Lord Jesus Christ restored Peter from his backsliding and his denying of the Lord uh, outside of the trial in the courtyard of the high priest, we're told that Jesus asked him three times. Lovest thou me? Simon, do you love me? Why? Because it's his love that needs to be professed and reinforced because it is love that enables us to persevere to the end. And uh, uh, John 14 and verse 30. Jesus speaks of his own perseverance. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. So in other words, Satan's going to come and attack Jesus. The greatest challenge he's ever faced. But that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. So Jesus is saying the greatest test of my perseverance is coming but I love the Father and I'm going to do what he says. It's it's the love of Christ that enabled Jesus himself to persevere, and it is this love that enables the believer to persevere. Love never fails. Love endures all things. Secondly, love outlasts every temporary phase of God's special revelation. Love outlasts every temporary phase of God's special revelation. Now, we're not saying that There are seven dispensations in the history of God's covenant, and and we're not dispensationalists, but we are recognizing that there's an unfolding revelation of the will of God throughout history from Genesis to Revelation, and there are various periods of administration within God's dealings with mankind and with His church. And so you can see, uh, you know, you, you have before the fall, after the fall, and then after the fall, you have before the flood, after the flood, and then you have God's revelation to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the period of the patriarchs, and then eventually you have Moses and then eventually uh, Joshua and then the period of the kings, David and Solomon, and the period of the prophets. All of these things leading up to the coming of Christ and the new covenant. And so you have these various periods of progressive special revelation, these temporary phases that exist. And Paul is referring to these, and we can see that if you look at verses 10 and 11. He states a general principle here that would apply to the transition from one phase of God's dealings or revelations to the next. It's almost an axiom, a statement, a summary statement of how we ought to view these various transitions from one period of revelation to the next in the history of God's covenant. He says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So in other words, this is a general principle. You see that when it's time to build the tabernacle and have a centralized place of worship, then they had to get rid of all the high places. You know, Abraham was able to build an altar wherever he wanted and worship God. But then comes the tabernacle under Moses, and now all the sacrifices have to be there. And eventually you get Solomon who builds the temple, this permanent structure in Jerusalem, and now they don't need the tabernacle anymore. And you go through the Old Testament types and shadows and ceremonies. Well, then Christ comes and all the temporary shadows go away and so on and so forth. He then takes this general principle and he illustrates it. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So he's saying in in human life, just as in the history of God's covenant, there are different phases and the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act uh, changes over the course of time in these various phases and developments. And this is the way that Paul often speaks of these temporary phases of God's revelation or of His covenant. For instance, in Galatians chapter 4, when he's talking about the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 1 of Galatians, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So he's saying in the life of the firstborn son, who's the heir to the family inheritance, there are different phases and stages. And so early on, the child has very few privileges at a very young age, almost less privilege or or the same privilege as a servant or as a slave in the household. There are different phases of uh, privilege and benefit and liberty and, and opportunity here but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by his father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So he's saying that in the Old Testament, the church was in one sense in bondage to all of these outward ceremonies, all of these meticulous, detailed ceremonies that were good, but they they were not best, right? They they were, for the church, underaged, and they eventually became obsolete with the coming of Christ. And, And you can see here that he uses this illustration of a child maturing into an adult. The Old Covenant Church, is the church underage. And the New Covenant Church is the church in its stage of adulthood or maturity. At least that's what it's supposed to be. Too often in churches, we find ourselves moving back to the smells and bells and outward tangible ceremonies of the Old Testament and, and really being immature. You know, if, if you were to tell a 30-year-old, you're, you're acting like a, a four-year-old, right? That's that, that's not a compliment. But if you told that to a two-year-old, that would be a compliment. Uh, But the point is, if New Testament saints are behaving like we're under the Old Covenant, that's a problem. We should take that as as a, as a, a motive for repentance. But in any event, this is the point Paul's making, that love outlasts every temporary phase of God's special revelation. So from the old to the new, lots of changes. One thing that hasn't changed, love, the priority of love. In fact, when Jesus articulates the New Covenant ethic, he's really just quoting the Old Covenant, the first great commandment, love God supremely. The second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That has not changed. Love transcends. Love continues. Love, whatever else has changed, that has not changed. Now that's a a general statement. Let's look at the specific examples he gives of transitions within God's Dealings with his people. You can see this in verse 9 and verse 10 where he deals with love outlasting the temporary apostolic revelation of the first century. Love outlasts the temporary op- apostolic revelation of the first century. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What is he speaking of? What are these partial things? Well, go to the previous verse. Verse 8. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And in terms of knowledge, you need to understand chapter 12 speaks of these revelatory gifts of the first century in terms of a word of knowledge a word of knowledge or word of wisdom chapter 12 verse 8 for one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit so he's saying there are these gifts of partial first century new testament revelation we don't have the whole will of god for the new testament church We don't have all Scripture which is breathed out by God and equips us for every good work. We don't have Genesis through Revelation yet. Much of the New Testament has not yet been written. And so God in His wisdom gave extraordinary first century apostolic revelatory gifts. Gifts of prophecy. Gifts of speaking miraculously in other tongues. uh, Words of knowledge and wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And these things were the scaffolding as the as the corpus, the body of New Testament literature was being written. But once the building is complete, once the canon is perfected, and once all sixty-six books are there enshrined in the Holy Bible, the scaffolding is removed. And these temporary apostolic revelatory gifts, these partial insights and partial words of wisdom and knowledge are taken away. So the church in the New Testament is the church in its mature phase, but really that first century apostolic period, while that foundational uh, corpus of biblical books was being written that has become the New Testament, during that provisional phase, the church was per- perhaps you could say a teenager, right? It's an early phase of adulthood, or, or, or you know, the church is a, in its young adulthood. But once the Bible is completed, 2 Timothy 3.16, looking ahead to future post-apostolic ministry for men like Timothy, you've got all Scripture, and it equips for every good work. So love was present in the first century church, in the days of the Corinthian church, and all of the difficulties they were facing. Love was the top priority, and love is the top priority today in the permanent phase of God's New Testament revelation with our completed Bible. Now, that completed Bible is described here in verse 12 as a mirror, as a mirror. Speaking of the New Testament, again, it hadn't been completed, but the Apostle Paul is speaking of it in terms of the Word of God that they had that was would eventually make up the permanent New Testament revelation. He says for now we see in a mirror this is a reference to scripture. He uses this illustration frequently uh, so Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 14 speaking of the in this case the the Jews who have a veil over their faces so that when they hear the Old Testament scriptures read, uh, they don't understand it. He says, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Then verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord." So he's saying a mirror reflects an image, right? If, if you're standing looking at a mirror and somebody walks up with a hammer and smashes your face in the mirror, uh, that's going to be offensive, but they haven't actually smashed your face. It's an image. It's a reflection of your face. Uh, we're not actually seeing the Lord Jesus Christ physically and hearing His voice. But in His Word, we see something of Him. We, we, By faith, His glory is reflected. And we're able to hear His voice by faith. We're able to see His face by faith. We're able to perceive His glory. And, and it's as it were in the Scriptures as an image. We don't see Him face to face, but we see this image. It's dark in comparison to the age to come, but it's in, in this case for Paul, it's far greater than anything that the Old Testament Jews had, certainly the unconverted Jews. It's a glorious manifestation in this mirror of the Word of God, and yet it's a mirror. It's an image, so you can see that in one sense, the Bible that we have is glorious and radiates with the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is uh, an illustration that James uses elsewhere as well. We won't turn to it, but James chapter 1, he speaks of reading God's Word as looking into a mirror. And it reflects certain things and teaches us about ourselves. So, So the completed Bible is a glorious and useful mirror for the Christian, but Paul's point here is, that it is a mirror that is enigmatic at best. The word darkly or dimly is the, the Greek word enigma. The scriptures that we have are by far superior to anything that the Old Testament saints had, and we're in a superior position even to the early stages of the apostolic church, having all 66 books. But in comparison to heaven, it's enigmatic We see, but we see dimly, darkly. It lacks the clarity and reality that we desire and to which we are headed as the people of God. So he's saying, even the relevance of the completed canon of Scripture will fade in heaven. It will fade. You won't, and this sounds heretical, you won't need a Bible in heaven. You'll be standing there face to face with Christ. You'll be perceiving... Not by faith, but by sight, the glory of God, the beatific vision of God. That means the eye of your soul will perceive God in all of His attributes to an extent that you cannot even begin to fathom at this moment. You will not need a Bible in heaven. You will have the eternal Word who was with God from the beginning and who is God. No more will you need to hear sermons. No more family worship. Reading from the scriptures. Singing from the scriptures. No more prayer as we know it in heaven. You'll be speaking face to face. You, you will have the immediate manifestation of God's presence. If you want to call that prayer, that's fine. But it's not the same thing that we do now where we're communing by faith. In heaven, it will not be through a glass dimly or darkly or enigmatically. Through faith, by the Scriptures, it will be face to face. The immediate perception of God's glory and His glory as well in the face of Christ. Emmanuel, the God-man mediator. When we die, our soul, Psalm 1715 says, awakes in the likeness of God and is satisfied, and for all eternity will not only have that benefit in our souls, but in our resurrected, glorified bodies as well, which are spiritual bodies. And therefore, the eyes with which Job says he's going to look upon the Lord, his glorified, resurrected eyes, will be able to perceive God's glory in the face of Christ to a maximum degree possible for a human. And the the eye of his mind will be able to perceive the glory of God to a maximum degree as a human being. We will see God in those ways. And when you compare that to what we have in the Scriptures, again, there's a holy discontentment that we ought to have. There's a holy discontentment that we ought to have. We ought to be satisfied with the Scriptures as the wonderful tract from the chapel library from uh, Jeff Thomas, points out we should be satisfied with the Scriptures. Uh, The rich man in hell should have been satisfied with Moses and the prophets. Okay, we're satisfied with the Scriptures. We believe in sola scriptura, tota scriptura, and all of that. But as we look ahead to heaven, we should not be satisfied with the Scriptures. We should be looking ahead, anticipating the day when this perception through the glass darkly will be replaced by face-to-face communion with Jesus Christ. Now as we'll see, the only way to truly anticipate and appreciate the glory and the love that is to come in intimate fellowship with Christ is by prizing and reading the Scriptures now. right? So it's not as though we dispense with our Bible, but we read our Bible as a man reads a, a love letter from his wife and they're separated. Yes, he reads the letter and he's filled with love for his wife as he's thinking about her, but he can't wait till the time when he can toss away the letter and see her face to face. So if we truly love the Scriptures, we will truly desire that time when they will be obsolete and where we will see and know God in Christ face to face. And what is that? It's love. You ought to have love for God in Christ now, Even in an era where you have the Bible, but you don't see Jesus face to face, what's the heart of Christianity today? Same as it ever was. Christian love. Loving God through Christ. Loving others. What's heaven? It's a fellowship of love between God through Christ with all of God's believing people who love one another. So Paul's saying Christian love is the thread that abides through it all and will abide supreme for all eternity Uh, in comparison with the partial knowledge that they had in the first century, even the partial knowledge we have in the Bible. The Bible is not a comprehensive revelation of all that there is to know. What's the day and time of the Lord's return? God knows it. Uh, Christ in His glorified humanity certainly knows it. We don't know it. There's a lot that God has not revealed in the Scriptures. But these are the secret things of the Lord. What He's given us, the revealed things, are ours and belong to us and to our children. And we ought not to curiously inquire into things that God has not revealed. And yet we ought to desire to know the answer to many of these things in heaven. Some of these questions we may have perhaps will never be answered, but so many of them will. And we ought to look forward to that. That full knowledge in comparison to our partial knowledge. And Paul makes a comparison. He says that when people look at me, they know me by looking at me. They perceive me directly. He says, but but at the moment, I'm not able to look at the face of Christ directly and, and know Him in the way that I'm known. Verse 12. He says, I'm known. People look at me they see me, they perceive me, they know me in a direct manner. I'm not able to do that. Absent from the body, present with the Lord? Yes, but at the moment, I'm present in the body, absent from the Lord. Now, he had seen a vision of Christ, so if he sa- if he says that his knowledge is imperfect, how much more those of us that have never laid eyes on the resurrected Savior. So he says, I know in part, but then... I shall know just as I also am known. Not that he will know God fully, even as God fully knows him. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying in general terms, when people know me, they know me by looking at me. And I will come to look upon Christ and experience him firsthand and know him in that kind of way through direct interaction with the God-man god man mediator. And certainly in our beatific vision of God's glory, there's the same analogy. Of course, we can't see God because He's invisible. He's immaterial. There's nothing to see, but we will see manifestations of His glory that God makes visible to us that, that the Bible says, I hath not seen nor ear heard nor hath it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. But notice even in that verse, love Love spans the ages. Love is no more supreme now than it will be in heaven, in some sense, more so in heaven. But he says that it will outlast all these things. And in addition, not only will love continue and abide in heaven, which is a world of love, but love outlasts those spiritual graces which are presently suited to special revelation in this life. Love outlasts those spiritual graces which are presently suited to special revelation in this life. So in this life we have the Bible. We perceive things by faith. It's by faith and by hope that we experience God's presence as we look ahead to the world to come. But love is going to outlast faith and it's going to outlast hope. He says, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest, I think in context here, you can't understand that word greatest without understanding the greatest duration. It it, it has an exceeding greatness because there's an exceeding duration. Love outlasts faith and it outlasts hope, at least as we know these graces in our present experience and so if you look at the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen so how does faith function in the permanent phase of the new covenant in which we find ourselves the the permanent revelation that we have in the Bible 66 books This is the perpetual revelation until Christ returns. Okay, how does faith function? Well, it functions as the evidence of things not seen. We can't see the heavenly Jerusalem. We can't see Christ seated on the throne. We can't see Jesus. But by faith, he says elsewhere in this epistle, we do see Jesus. We see Him by faith. We perceive His presence by reading of His promises to be present with us and believing them, and we experience joy inexpressible and full of glory. We love Him, though we have not seen Him. That is by faith. It's not a blind faith because we're believing what the Word of God tells us, but we don't, we don't experience it by sight. We know it by faith. Well, of course, in the world to come, that kind of faith will be obsolete. We walk by faith, not by sight in this world. But of course, in the world to come, we won't need to walk by faith. Of course, we'll still have confidence in God's word. There's no question there's an element of faith that is intrinsic to the believing soul. But in terms of faith as it's used by Paul in his epistles in this particular phase of God's plan, faith will be obsolete. We will not walk by faith. We will walk by faith sight. And notice faith is the substance of things hoped for. So faith manifests itself by way of hope. When we believe things that God has said are coming in the future, and we believingly anticipate and expect those things, our faith is being exercised by way of hope. Hope. So faith produces hope. If I believe present realities that are unseen, I'm experiencing them and believing them by faith. The unseen. But if I believe what God is going to do in the future and I expect and anticipate that by faith, now I'm exercising hope. Faith works by hope. And yet we're told in Romans chapter 8 that this type of hope would not make sense in the world to come. Romans 8, verse 23. He says midway through the verse, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. See that? Hope that is seen, hope that is seen and experienced in your Present experience is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, he's not saying that heaven is hopeless, okay? There's an ever-expanding joy to anticipate in heaven. Heaven never gets boring, it never gets old. It has, and there's a quote that I don't have in front of me from... Joseph Carroll, uh, a nugget of gold mined from uh, the, uh, the, the giant uh, uh, massive tome that he wrote, 12 volumes on the book of Job. But he talks about how heaven has this immediacy to it, that it, it never gets old, it's always fresh and new. Every moment is as a brand new eternity in every single moment. And so we're not saying that in heaven we won't be hopeful and anticipating the next moment and the next moment as we grow in our knowledge and our love for God and our experience of Christ. Obviously, there's that kind of hope. But again, in the biblical New Testament sense, Paul is saying, if you're experiencing it now, it's not hope. And so faith and hope, as they are presently suited to this life, will be obsolete, will be done away. Faith and hope are suited to the current administration of God's covenant where you read the Bible, you hear sermons, you sing psalms, you've got the Word of God, the sacraments, you walk by faith, you're waiting on the Lord, but when heaven arrives, it's a world of love, not a world of faith, not a world of hope, but primarily a world of love. And so love spans the ages. Love has this exceeding Greatness. It is more excellent. It is the greatest, even among these New Testament spiritual graces. And the reason that it's so great, and the reason that it's at the heart of all God's dealings with His people throughout the ages, the reason is very clear. If you think about it, love most clearly reflects the character of God. Again, remember our summary at the beginning. Love's exceeding duration serves to demonstrate its exceeding greatness as the Christian virtue which most clearly reflects God's character. The exceeding greatness of Christian love is seen in the fact that it most clearly reflects the character of God. God does not in any sense exercise faith. God does not exercise faith. Uh, you see these uh, ridiculous advertisements uh, behind home plate, if you, if you watch baseball, and there's this organization. I can't remember um, what the name of the organization is. Uh, he gets us, or something like that. And and I think that it's it's not a very good organization. But a, a lot of their just uh, cheap and irreverent kinds of advertisements for Christ and the gospel. Uh, one of them says that. Uh, Jesus believes in his teammates or Jesus believed in his teammates too or something like that. Um, actually, if you go to John chapter 2, it says that he looked at the, the faith of many who professed faith in his name and it says he didn't believe in their profession um, because he knew what was in man. Jesus is not putting his trust in you. God does not believe you. He, he, God knows all things instantaneously eternally unchangeably as it were in a moment of time he knows everything all at once simultaneously okay God does not have to believe the witness of someone else God himself is the ultimate witness and the standard and source of all knowledge whatsoever so God doesn't need to exercise faith and God doesn't have to lean on with confidence on somebody else. Even when God swears an oath, He swears it by Himself because there's no one greater that He can rely on to hold Him accountable. God doesn't exercise faith. Um, Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ exercised as man faith in God, but God in Himself does not exercise faith. God does not exercise hope. God is eternal. He's outside of time. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God longing for his people, and there's something meaningful there in terms of uh, an anthropomorphism comparing uh, or expressing God's nature in human terms. But God does not hope. God is not uh, waiting and desiring and, and unfulfilled and waiting to be satisfied. God is ever blessed in himself. God does not hope. He does not express or exercise faith. But he does love. In fact, God's character is described in this way by John the Apostle, God is love. God is love. Uh, When the Bible describes the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, how does it describe those relationships? Love. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. We're told that the Son of God is the beloved Son of God. We're told that the church is the kingdom of the Son of God's love. And no doubt the Holy Spirit inspires these types of statements, understanding that they apply to His relationship with the Father and the Son. If the Father and the Son have a relationship of mutual love and affection, then no doubt when the Father and the Son spirate the Holy Spirit from all eternity. Breathe out the Holy Spirit from all eternity. When the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity, He proceeds in a relationship of love. And so you can't get away from it. God is love. His divine relations are defined by love. In fact, John 17 says that Christ prayed that the love that He has for His Son, the love God has for His Son, would then be bestowed upon the people of God that perfect eternal relationship is characterized by love also the divine image into which man was created in knowledge righteousness and holiness what is knowledge what is it to know God we're told Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived seed there's an example of relational love intimate love The Bible presents God's relationship with His church as one of a marriage covenant. The knowledge that we have of God is not a dead knowledge, a cold orthodoxy, but it is a knowledge of intimacy. In fact, when the Bible says that God um, foreknew and predestined His people, the word know there is according to most commentators, and I think rightly so is a reference to God's relational knowledge of His people. Those whom He foreknew by way of intimate love and and, uh, election, electing them, setting His love upon them, knowing them in that relational sense, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined for the adoption as sons. Knowledge of God is relational. Righteousness, I mean, what is righteousness but the law of God? What's the law of God in essence? Love God, love your neighbor, even love your enemies. What is holiness? Holiness is being set apart from the world, come out from among them, touch not the unclean thing, and I will be a father to you as my sons and daughters. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Holiness is being set apart from all other loves unto a holy, set apart fellowship of intimate communion with God. So, man's created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Love is at the heart of God's image in man. It's at the heart, as I said, of God's law. Love God, love your neighbor. It's at the heart of God's covenant of salvation with his people. What is the essence of God's covenant with us as his believing people? God loves us, and we love him. It's a marriage. It's a spiritual marriage between us and Jehovah our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Bridegroom. It is a friendship. It is a fellowship. It is, as it were, in a sense, a family, children relating to a father. It is characterized at every turn by love. Now, as creatures, we do not have a mutual relationship with God. We need to be careful about that. There are some false teachings out there that sort of bring the creator down to the creaturely level, and I'm not speaking of the incarnation, but in terms of the character of God as God, they try to make God and man mutual. Well, it's not exactly the case, but, but by way of God's covenant of grace, we do experience the closest thing to a mutual relationship that is humanly possible. As it, the Song of Solomon points out, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Love. Again, not strictly mutual, but if we can say covenantally mutual, in a sense, I am my beloved's and He is mine. We exercise faith in God. He doesn't exercise faith in us. We exercise hope in God. He doesn't exercise hope in us. But we exercise love toward God. He loves us. We love Him. He loves us. We love Him. This, my friends, is the heartbeat of eternity. Well, briefly, how do we apply this? And I think we apply it in, in this way, just one application. As you navigate the various temporary stages of your life, make it your top priority to cultivate Christian love. Christian love, piety and charity. This love, this priority never fails to be relevant. It never fails to prepare you for the next stage. Old Testament saints that were grounded in piety and charity were not uh, caught by surprise when the Lord Jesus Christ arrived and ushered in the next phase of God's covenant. Uh, Those people in Corinth who prized Christian love were not made totally irrelevant and all of their investment in that went went to waste when God removed those extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. They were prepared for the next phase. My friends, those single believers who are looking for marriage are not going to find their efforts to cultivate piety and charity to be anything other than a fantastic, fruitful investment for the next phase and stage of life. Those uh, married couples that desire for God to give them children cannot prepare for parenting more than by basic duties of piety and charity, cultivating love for God in practical ways, daily relationship with him through the word and prayer, showing love and grace and patience toward other people. If you love the people that you're currently around as a single person, your family, your friends, that's the way to prepare to love your spouse. And if you think, well, there's some other preparation, I'm going to read all these fancy books about marriage, but I'm going to treat the people around me like trash. My friends, you're not preparing for marriage. Because it's the same thing you're you're required to do in marriage as you're required to do now. Be patient, be kind, be gracious. It's the same thing you're going to have to do in marriage. Find time to read the Bible. Find time to pray. If you can't do that in single life or you can't do that as uh, as spouses that are expecting children, you're not going to do it in the next phase or the next phase either. And if we're not doing it now, my friends... Uh, We're not going to, in a sense, be prepared to give an account at the last day and enter into eternal glory. This ought to be the most excellent, the greatest priority in the Christian life, our relationship with God, our relationship with others. There are many other things in life. You say, well, that's so comprehensive. What could possibly be left out? There are a lot of things in life that don't directly relate to your personal relationship with God and your serving and loving other people. There are a lot of things, um, and, and I don't think I need to even list them. They're easy to find, and you need to find out where they are in your life and make sure that they're on the fringes and on the periphery and that Christian love is your greatest priority. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your holy word, We thank you for the faith by which we hear your voice in it, and we see your face revealed in the face of your Son. We ask that you would use this word by your Spirit to prepare us for that glorious day when Christ shall return, and we will see our bridegroom face to face. We ask in his name, amen.